Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Don't forget to bring your Bibles to church. While you're turning there, let me read you a quote from John Calvin. He said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. The gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. The gospel is not a doctrine of tongue, but of life. He said that in the context of the reality that our hearts and our lives are, by nature, continually creating idols for us to worship, to distract us from the true and living God. So we're in the middle of Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. We're in verse 35. So we're going to do eight verses starting at verse 35. Follow along with me if you would. This Moses, whom they rejected, remember we spoke about God raising up Moses, speaking to him in the burning bush. Stephen goes on to say, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. By the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Let me pray. Father, in this text are somber words. Words that call out those who have seen your mercy and grace and yet have turned away from you. So, Father, make our hearts attentive. Give us the means to endure despite in our lives being surrounded by idols. Lord, even in our hearts, the the temptation to follow after distraction and fleeting pleasures. Lord, would you bind our hearts fast to the confession of Christ. And Lord, would you draw our hearts to worship him in spirit and in truth in all that we do. In his name we pray, amen. So Stephen is driving in this sermon. Remember, he's in front of the high priest and the high priest's family. These are the very people in Jerusalem who sent Jesus to the Romans to be crucified. They said, you have broken our law and we need him to be crucified. So they sent him off to Pilate. And so they have already materially rejected Jesus Christ, although they had philosophically rejected him long before. They knew they weren't going to bow to him in his very early ministry. They sought to kill and discredit Jesus from the beginning. 
And so he's driving towards this point in front of these leaders in Israel to say, if you do not have this Christ, you do not have the God that you think you have. You, you think you know God, you think you have Moses and the law in the temple, and you think that those things are going to be enough for you to enter God's presence. And he's using their own history, their own personal religious history, to show them that they are not on the favorable side of God's redemptive story. We have seen God in the previous parts of Stephen's sermon as the promise keeper and as the judge. We have seen him as the savior, the sovereign. And with these realities in place, these identities of God, it does beg the question, where does human response factor into God's redemption? Where does human responsibility factor in with these things? If he is the judge, the promise keeper, and the savior, where does humanity come in? The question that we really get answered this morning is, what does God do when all of his mercies are rejected? And why do people reject him? What does God do about that? The Hebrews, in this passage, after they leave Egypt, they show us what this looked like. They've been rescued out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery. We're not talking like four years. We are talking generations of slavery being broken finally by God's mighty hand to lead them out miraculously and to give them freedom. And they immediately, and you should read this story, it's all in Exodus. It begins in Exodus 1 and it goes for 30, 40 chapters. Just speaking of the history and how they responded, you, you should read that this afternoon because it will shock you at how quickly they begin to grumble and criticize Moses who was God's instrument of salvation. They eventually fully disown and push him aside, as our text shows us. It's the first verse we look at this morning. This Moses whom they rejected, they push him aside, they thrust him aside, and God responds dramatically to that. God does not ignore the reality that his people have just pushed him aside. God is not passive. God does not say, oh, maybe they didn't quite get it. Maybe I just need to send a better preacher. He responds dramatically. And what Stephen is saying to the Hebrews is, or to the, to the high priest and his family, he's saying, you are exactly like the Hebrews. In this story, you are the characters that God turns his face against. You can see why they get so angry at the end of this sermon, but he is driving the point to them. You are no different than these who rebelled. And the story proves it. One of the other things that this text proves to us is that rejection of God is based on what we want to worship, not based on our intellect. Let me say that again. Rejection of God is based on what we want to worship. It's not based on what we think we know about God or what we think we know better than God. Rejection of God is not intellectual. It is adoration and worship-based. As Calvin said, we are a perpetual factory of idols. We will always find something to worship. And if we do not watch our worship, we will be like those who turn away, having seen the mercies of God. This story underscores Paul's words to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6.1. He said to them, You have received the grace of God. Do not let it come to nothing. In other words, if you have seen and you have experienced God's mercy and his grace in some way, do not let it go to waste. 
Do not pass up what he has given to you. Do not turn back. Which means, my friends, that there is a real danger of turning back. There is a danger available to every single one of us of turning away from the living God. Do I believe in eternal security? Absolutely. Do I also believe that Humanity must embrace and follow after Christ in order to confirm their election. Also, yes. So God's word warns us for our good. This warning is not to, to cement anybody here in their rebellion or in their rejection of God and say there is no hope for you. This warning is for your good. This warning is so that you might endure. This warning is so that you might cling to Christ in the next hour as much as you did in the hour before It's to worship him truly. So what does our text tell us? Why is this such a significant warning? Number one, God's grace was on full display and is on in full display in Jesus Christ. It was on full display with Moses and it is in full display in Jesus Christ. That's the first thing our text shows us. The high priest claims that they're defending a history of Moses and the law in the temple, right? They say, They said to Stephen, you're going to change those things, and for that, we need to punish you. Ironically, though, it was Moses who was rejected by his own people, which is mirrored exactly in the life of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1 and 11, it says that he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. It doesn't just say he came to the world. Because Jesus was a Jew. He was born into a Jewish line, confirmed in both of his parents. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. It's the same story of Moses. This word rejected here in verse 35, whom they rejected, the New American Standard Bible says they disowned. How much more familial is that word? To disown somebody is to reject somebody of your own family. To disown somebody would be to say, despite the fact that we are related, I want nothing to do with you. And so it's not just the rejection of his, who he was, but it was a rejection of their, bo- their, their bond with him, their family bond. And it was the same with Christ. This is offensive to God because of the grace that he put on display in this character. Let's look at three ways God's mercy and his grace was on display in Moses. These are right in our text. Number one is that Moses was sent because of their horrible circumstances as a rescue. This is why it is an offense to God to push him aside because Moses was sent because of their circumstances as a rescue. He did not send Moses to judge or condemn them. He sent him to rescue them. In Exodus 37, God says to Moses, I have seen the toils of my people. I have heard their groaning and I know their suffering. God has looked at them and he has seen their suffering and he has said, I will not let this go on anymore. So he sends Moses. He says, I have come down to rescue them. So go to Egypt. God puts his grace on display in sending him. These people were not deserving of anything were they they were just slaves they didn't have a great worship program they didn't have a great discipleship program they didn't have a bible reading program they had nothing to show god how good christians they were they were just slaves this is the message of the gospel that when you were saved you had not done anything deserving of god he just saved you because he saw your groaning he saw your suffering 
Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 3.17. I did not come to the world to condemn the world, but I came to save the world. That's the ministry of Moses. That's the ministry of Jesus Christ. Moses also came. Notice in your text why they rejected him, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Who, what gives you the right to tell us where we're going and what we're doing? Stephen says to the high priest in his family, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. It's because God made him a ruler and redeemer. That's what made him the chosen instrument. What does that mean? Is that, it means that God sent him to rescue them first and to rule them second. I mean, are we really to believe that God would lead out these one to two million people out of Egypt and then just let them go about their way once they get to the wilderness, right? It's like, well, now you're free. And we learned this last week, that God's salvation does not make us autonomous. True freedom as a human being is submission in God's plan and his perspective and his function for humanity. If he built us with a function, then we are never free until we are fully operating in that function, which is a right relationship with him. That's why salvation puts us under God and under his law graciously because it makes us who we were meant to be. And so, of course, God's not going to let these two million people wander about in the wilderness. So what happens after he saves them? He calls Moses up to the mountain. He gives the law. He assembles them as a people and says, I will make you a nation. I'm going to give you a law. I'm going to give you customs. I'm going to give you an identity. I'm going to give you a diet that's going to cause you to be healthier than your counterparts in other nations, which believed in bloodletting and child sacrifice and all kinds of wacky religious practice. And so God sets apart this people. He gives them a redeemer and he also gives them a ruler. And it was in Moses. Number two. So number one, Moses was sent. This is God's grace on display in Moses. Number two, God authenticated his power and presence with Moses. Now, we're all rightly maybe suspicious of people who come and say, I come in the name of God to do something for you or to speak to you, right? So what does God do with Moses? He authenticates that he is the one who sent him. He proves to the people, I'm the one who sent him. When he goes into Egypt, it says that he performed signs and wonders in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness. There's three seasons of works that Stephen mentions here, all three from God. Number one, when he sent him into Egypt, what happened? Moses said, Pharaoh, you need to let these people go. And they say, why should I let you, why should I let these people go? Like what on earth authority do you have? And he makes his staff into a snake. And then the magicians do the same thing. And they say, look, we have magic powers too. But then God's snake eats the magician's snake. And it's like, what's up? My snake's bigger. And so pound for pound, these magicians were trying to outdo God's powers in Moses until they couldn't. There were 10 plagues, right? That Moses was bringing upon this judgment into Egypt. God was with him to prove to Pharaoh and the people that you, you better submit because this is the living God who is speaking to you. So that's in Egypt. What else does he do? They come to the Red Sea. He leads them out and they come to the Red Sea, which is a pretty much a dead end. Okay, so are the miracles over? Is Moses, are his pockets empty? You got anything else up your sleeve, Moses? Because the Egyptian army, they see, had changed their mind and they're starting to come back. And they're either going to take us back into slavery or they're just going to kill us all. So what's up now? And then the Red Sea parts. 
Literally, the waters part. The wind blows them apart and creates a dry strip through. And so Israel, the Hebrews at the time, they pass through on dry land, as it were. But the miracles are not done yet because it's not like an elevator whose doors are just stuck open. As the Egyptian army comes in, the waters rush back and swallow up the Egyptian army. Safety for the Hebrews. And this is all through the hands of Moses. So what happens when they get in the wilderness? They began grumbling. They say, oh, now we're just going to die in the wilderness instead of at the hands of the Egyptians. We're getting thirsty, Moses. So Moses goes and he brings water out of a rock. Gives them fresh water to drink. Well, if you have kids, you know what's next. Well, now I'm hungry. Now I'm hungry. Are we going to die of hunger now? No, because God sends through Moses manna, which is a kind of like a flower that settled on the grass after the dew evaporated. And they could gather up this flower and they could make bread cakes in the wilderness. They already had water. So through Moses, God is is performing these signs and wonders to say, I am with you. He is authenticating his rescue with them. He's not just asking the Hebrews to blindly trust this guy because he was the only one available. This is God's chosen instrument of salvation. So that's in verse 36. We see that God has proved to the people that this is your salvation. This is your person. You need to follow him. God's power was fully present in every detail of their salvation. Did you see that? In Egypt, his power brought them out. At the Red Sea, his power rescued them from destruction. In the wilderness, his power kept them from death, from the elements. He was with them all the way through Moses. So number one, God's grace is on display because Moses was sent to relieve them of their suffering. Number two, God authenticated and proved his power in Moses. And the third thing our text gives us is that he spoke. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation. Did you know that that is a direct prophecy of Jesus Christ himself? Here's why. Israel, at that time, when Moses went up the mountain to receive the commands, there was lightning and thunder and fire and smoke around the mountain. And the mountain, if you came up to it and touched it, you would die. So the Hebrews were a little bit terrified of this, and they asked for a different type of prophet. They were like, this is a little bit scary for us. And Moses promised them, God is going to bring up another prophet like me from among your brothers. Well, who is that? Jesus Christ. He was lowly. He was of no appearance that we should look on him and think that he was beautiful. He was utterly approachable. He was the fulfillment of that promise. Instead of a smoking mountain and fire, Christ would come on a donkey, humble and approachable. This is the prophet that they were looking for in Jesus Christ. When, by the way, this is Stephen speaking to the leaders who killed that prophet. Do you know that feeling when guilt or, or regret starts to well up from your stomach and it goes up your chest like this? When you realize you, 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 you did something you can't reverse, you'd said something you can't take back, you made a decision that you cannot fix, and it starts to get up here and it's just, it overwhelms and crushes you. This is what Stephen is doing here. Moses promised you a prophet and you killed him. You're no different than the Hebrews in the wilderness. So God spoke to them through Moses. He gave his law and he prepared Israel for that last prophet and lawgiver. He prepared them. He told them a better prophet is coming. A Messiah is coming. 
This was all a gracious act of God's self-disclosure. Think about that. Does God have to reveal himself to humanity? He doesn't have to, but he does. The book of Romans tells us that he reveals himself first in creation. Everyone knows there's a God just by opening their window in the morning. God doesn't have to do that. And yet then he exposed himself all the greater to Israel and throughout history to their forefathers and then ultimately in Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 is one of my favorite passages in all of scripture because it just makes life so simple. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. The final word from God is in Jesus Christ. That's the final word. We're not waiting for more prophecy. The time of prophets speaking in shadows and types is over. We now have Christ, the final word. The word of God wrapped in flesh and among us. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 9. Have I been with you this long and you still do not know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Said nobody in the history of the world except Jesus Christ. Anybody who says, if you have seen me, you have seen God, is either insane, radically narcissistic, Lying or the Son of God. God Himself, who dwelled at the right hand of the Father even at the time of creation. So, Jesus is God's perfect revelation, the final word from God. So, these are the threefold ways that God's mercy was on display in Moses. He sent Him in their suffering, He authenticated His power with them. And then he also spoke through him and promised a greater prophet. And so this brings us to the question, what happens if you reject that much from God? That much from God. We could go and list <clears throat> into greater detail what else God might have done or how deep these revelations went. But to reject this much revelation from God is not accidental. To reject this much effort on God's part to draw you to himself is serious. It's decisional. It's intentional. It's not by accident. So the second point, the first point in our outline is that, is that God had put on his full display of grace in Moses and in Jesus Christ. The second point in our outline is that you cannot recover you cannot recover from rejecting jesus christ exodus 32 8 says this how quickly they have turned aside from the way that i taught them to live god notices this immediately and stephen writes in his sermon our fathers refused to obey him they thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to egypt so they didn't actually physically go back and walk to egypt but in their hearts they went back in their hearts, they rejected what God had done. In their hearts, they said, we would rather be enslaved and, and, and worship the pagan gods of, of Egypt than to go through this. To be a little bit hungry, to, to suffer a little bit, to wait for your water. And then they said to Aaron in verse 40, make for us gods who will go before us. Aaron was... Moses' right-hand man, Aaron should have been there to correct them. Aaron should have been there to say, whoa, 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 I think we're going to wait for Moses to come back down before we start making golden calves. Just a suggestion. 
So they say to Aaron, make for us gold calves who will go before us. Make for us gods. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So in their rejection of Moses, they are acknowledging they know what he did. But in his absence going up the mountain, they have chosen to forget. And God notices and he says, look how quickly they've turned aside. What did he mean by that? What did he mean by turning aside? It was that they created idols and they began to worship them as gods. And here's what's most offensive to God. In that story in Exodus, they start, Aaron says to them, Behold your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They create, create idols and they begin to attribute the work of God to these false creations. And it says that they rejoiced in the work of their hands. They thought, aren't we so clever? Aren't we so crafty? Aren't we? Look at this. We can, we can create our own religion right here. We've got a great backstory. We've got a great object of worship. We've got Aaron right here who can be our leader. And we've got all of us who agree this is a good idea. We've got the makings of an awesome religion here. But in the absence of true worship, it is false religion and it is false worship. This is amazing, is that part of this worship we read in the book of Exodus included surprise, surprise, sexual immorality. It says that they sat down to eat, as in to feast, to create a religious feast, and they also rose up to play. That word is a polite euphemism in your Bible for sexual orgies, debauchery, utter immorality, chaotic, insane, pagan, cult, prostitute, worship. They rose up to play. So this false religion, surprise, surprise, includes unbelievable sexual indulgence. Do you know how many people, the deep down reason they will not come to God is because our craving for sexual freedom? Do we not see now, the, as we have departed from Christ, the, the primary battle for Christianity right now is discussing sexual identity with our culture. Why does sexual identity become the hallmark of false religion? Because it is to make oneself autonomous. We, we have it in, in full expression today. It's literally all about identifying who you are. Self-identifying, self-naming. When God creates, he names, he identifies. Pagan religion says, I will identify, I will create. I will rejoice in the work of my own hands. Stories are coming out all the time in the news and we don't need to detail their messages, but basically wildly unorthodox forms of child conception and birth and family structures and people pour on the praise. They pour on the celebration. Isn't this so awesome that humanity, we can just we literally do whatever we want. Biologically, we can do whatever we want. We rejoice in the works of our own hands because it says, who needs God when you can do this? So this outright rejection invites a clear response from God. I will, I will propose that this is the most terrifying passage in all of Scripture. But God turned away and he gave them over to worship the host of heaven. That may be the most terrifying phrase in all of Scripture. He let them have what they wanted. They let, he let them have what they wanted Remember that when he turned to them, 
He saw with his eyes, he heard with his ears, and he knew with his mind his people. He was intimately involved with the suffering and the condition of his people when he reached out in salvation. And when they rejected that, what happens? It says he turned away. To use that same facial analogy, he then, instead of turning his attention and his senses to them, he turned away and he gave them over to what they wanted. He let them worship the way they wanted. I wonder how many of us think that it is unjust that God would save some and not others. And how many of us would also think that it is unjust that God would let people walk down the path that they choose? Because God does both. God does both. He let them. He gave them over to worship the host of heaven. The host of heaven meaning anything but God. The first commandment was, you shall have no other gods before me. And when they turn and, false, and follow false gods and false worship and self-indulgence, he says, go worship your gods. <clears throat> go worship your gods. Psalm 115, 4 and 8. What happens, <clears throat> excuse me, what happens when we worship false gods? Psalm 115, verses 4, and then also 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of what? Human hands. It's not a very impressive God. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Oh, listen to this. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. They have feet, but they do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. Those who make them become like them. Did you notice how God can see the suffering of his people? He can hear the groaning of his people. He can know their suffering. But what do false gods do? They look the part, but they can do nothing for humanity. They have hands, but do not feel. They have feet, but they do not walk. They are literally statues. So do we, think that, do we think that people are undeserving of this from God for rejecting God's grace? Now, don't misunderstand me. God does not arbitrarily turn his back on people. He does not. What does Joel chapter 2 say? And Peter repeats it in Acts chapter 2. It shall come to pass in these last days that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God does not arbitrarily turn his back on people. What does he do? He turns his back when his grace is rejected. Ignorant pagans are eligible for mercy. Those who have seen and tasted and experienced God's grace are not, who have rejected. So my friends, what, what is the remedy? How do we respond to this? It's the title of my message. Watch your worship. Guard your worship. 1 Corinthians 10.6 says this, Now these things took place as examples to us. How do we deal with a story like this when people reject God's mercy and then he turns his back on them? How should we work with this story? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Don't ignore the story. It's written as an example to you. It's written as an example that we might not desire evil as they did. 
So look at them, look at the folly of their way, look at the foolishness of what they chose, and don't be like them. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. Now, they did not all die in this rebellion. They did not all have God's back turned on them. About 3,000 of them did, and they died. God did not tolerate their rejection. Now, some of them were idolaters. Notice that some did not go along with it. Some stayed true to the Lord. Some waited for Moses. As it is written, they sat down to eat and, they, and drink, and they rose up to play. Paul quotes that more fully in 1 Corinthians 10.6. They sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them. So notice how false religion so often follows first sexual indulgence. I've told this story before, but a, a pastor who one of his elders came to him and said, you know, pastor, I'm really doubting my faith right now. I'm doubting Christ. I'm doubting his claims. I'm doubting the Bible. I don't know what to do. And I... I don't know if I'm going to be like this pastor, but the first question he asked his elder, he said, who are you having an affair with? Talk about bold. But do you know that he was bang on? That elder had begun an adulterous relationship and as a result, his faith started to crumble. Why? Because the sexual indulgence felt right. It felt right. It felt good. It pleased the flesh. So the things in the mind that are telling the flesh that's wrong, if it feels right, then what's going to go? Both can't live in the same world. So faith starts to crumble. So my friends, sexual indulgence will erode your faith. It will erode your confession. So guard your worship. Guard what you adore. Guard what your mind and your heart long after. Men, guard your heart. Guard your eyes. Guard your affections. Guard your habits. Women, guard your aspirations. Guard your desires. Guard your plans. Guard what you find beautiful. May it be in line with what God declares beautiful. The point is that our actions lead to our beliefs. So often. Don't we think it's the other way around? So often we, we don't want to obey God until we feel like it's the right thing to do. How often is it that when we obey God and when we follow after him, we understand the value in it and we begin to believe it convictionally? This is not a sermon about avoiding certain sins so that you are good in God's eyes. Make sure you don't sin so that God doesn't turn his back on you. That is not what this message is saying. Do not all of us stumble and fall? Did not John say to his listeners, hey, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. But if you confess your sin, then Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you. This message is not saying, if you stumble, God will turn his back. I am not saying that. Please hear me. I'm saying this is how you respond to what God has done for you. This is about whether or not your life worships and follows Christ. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 is a hotly debated passage I find it fits so perfectly in with this story. For it is impossible in the case who have those, sorry, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. 
Did you hear that? It is impossible in the case of these people to restore them to repentance if they fall away. That's just like the Hebrews. They saw everything God had done. They saw the miraculous work of bringing them out of slavery. They, they saw how he fed them. They saw how he protected them. They saw how he did everything for them. And then they chose to, to reject. That is when God says it's impossible to renew those people to repentance. Why? Is there some tricky, mystical thing that happens? No, it's very simple. If God puts his full redemption on display for somebody and they reject, what else does God have to show them? Do you understand what I'm saying? If you have seen everything that God has to offer his people, and then you say, nope, God has fully disclosed himself to you. You are so accountable. You are so responsible for what you know. This is why I'm saying somebody who's a pagan, who's a totally ignorant of the truth, they are not held to this reality. But what does it say in the book of Hebrews chapter 6? Those who have been enlightened, so they have heard. They've tasted the heavenly gift. And so maybe as part of their inspiration in the community that they're in, they have shed some of their sinful habits and that feels really good. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. I don't know what fully that means, but when God's Spirit is among His people, there is a joy. There is the presence of God, and so they have tasted the presence of God. They have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Can you imagine sitting under the sweet preaching of God's Word? They have heard it. They know it. And they've seen the powers of the age to come. And then they reject. What else does God have to bring them to repentance? Nothing. Nothing else. If we come to God desiring freedom from sin, but we do not give him our worship, we are not truly converted. We do not belong to him just because we look like other Christians. Just because we act like other Christians, it does not mean we belong to him. My friends, watch your worship. The redeemed life is a life which worships God. And I don't mean that you know all the Christian songs. I mean, Romans chapter 12, let your life be a spiritual sacrifice, which means you make decisions to please God in everything that you do from your work to raising your kids to what car you drive to where you live. Everything is about God. Now, are you all thinking about ways that you've made decisions that don't please God? Of course, I am right now too. This is not perfection. This is not sinless saints. I'm not preaching that you, you cannot make mistakes or you cannot grow in wisdom and maturity. We all can. But is your desire to please God, is your desire to follow after him? Friends, there are days where even my own heart is so black, I have no worship for God inside me. That's not, I'm not talking about those bad spiritual days. I'm talking about do you define your life by what you don't do or what you do do? Or do you find, define your life by the glory of God, that you love him, that he loves you? Pursuing him, serving him, speaking of him, not because those things save you, because those things actually guard you from pursuing the things that destroy us. When you pursue Christ, it greatly guards you from pursuing sin and indulging and enjoying in the things that destroy us Sin and shame. So what can you do? And I'll close with just two exhortations and a couple scriptures. What can you do? Number one, fill your life with the things of God. Just fill your life with the things of God. 
Philippians 4.8 says, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is excellent, whatever is admirable, fix your thoughts on such things. Just fill your life with the things of God. If things are displeasing and evil and wicked in some way, just, just push that out. Some of us need to make tough choices about the things that aren't bad, but they're definitely not helping us with our walk with Christ. So number one, fill your life with the things of God. Number two, get beyond superficial with your brothers and sisters. Hebrews 3, 12 to 14 says, see to it, which means pay attention. Make sure that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that what? Turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily so that none of you are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Did you hear that? Encourage each other daily so that none of you will fall for the deception of sin. We need to hang out with each other. We need to ask each other questions. How are you doing? What's your life like? How do you spend your time? What are the ways that you're building into your life habits that draw you after Christ? What are some of the things you're leaving behind? I had great conversations with my good friend, Mark. We went to Shepherd's Conference together and we've had two really good conversations since that conference talking about what are the ways God is showing you to, to push forward, to leave behind things that are dragging you down and to push forward. Mark's not scared of his salvation being lost. I'm not scared of God casting me aside. I'm not doing these things out of fear, but I'm doing them because I want my life to be filled with the things that draw me to him. Because I love him. I, I want to love him more than I do. Do you know that? I want to love God so much more than I do right now. I want his joy and his worship to just come out of me in everything that I do, all the decisions I make, and I'm not there yet. So that's part of the walking process. I'll finish the verse. <laughs> We have come to share in Christ if we hold our conviction until the very end. Again, this is not a threat. Oh, if you doubt, you might slip into destruction. No. But the confident life in Christ is the believing life. There's this phrase that I hope gets wiped off the face of the planet, once saved, always saved, which to me suggests that if you pray a prayer at one time and then you live your life any old way you want, well, at least you handcuffed Jesus back then. He became your savior and now you get to just drag his name through the mud for the rest of your life. You get to live any old way you want. You get to reject the means of grace. You get to say, no, I'm going to do it my way. But you said that prayer. I don't believe that's what scripture teaches. What I believe scripture teaches is that once saved, always following. The evidence of your salvation is that you are not walking away from God. That you are not rejecting the grace that he has shown you. My friends, this is a warning inside the church. I don't know what's going to come along in your life and I pray we get to walk through it together. But there are things that you will face that will legitimately want to pull you away from God. There are things that will come into your life. If, you, if your faith is very comfortable right now, it won't always be. Things will come that will say, are you sure you're doing it the right way? Why don't you come live this way and just be free and you can still talk about God if you want. There are things that will come and we are guarded by scripture to say, watch your worship. Where is your adoration? Hebrews 10, 39, I love this. But we, 
I pray we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. My friends, we are not those who shrink back, but go forward in faith. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back. Don't go back. Romans 6, 6 and 7 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. This language of freedom is not accidental. It's because it is rooted in the historic reality of the Hebrews going free from their slavery in Egypt. But there is that moment where they experienced the freedom and yet they turned away. My friends, this is a call to adore Christ, to fill your life with the things of God and to get beyond superficial with your brothers and sisters because you cannot do it alone. You're already here, so that's, that's a huge step. But I pray that your relationships go deeper and that God continues to preserve you by faith, by his means of grace, the family of God, things in your life which draw you to him. The scriptures, meditation on him, just draw in, just draw deep. Go near to God, for he has welcomed you. What are the things in your life that prevent you from, from going deeper with God and making him a, a greater object of worship in your life. We all have them. We all do. I needed to watch less Leaf games and a little bit less West Wing. It's just reality, right? I need, to spend, I need to make more of my life free for God. And you know what? It has blessed me. It has, it has cleared my mind and cleared my heart to worship God more deeply. Let's close in prayer and we're going to have a time of reflection before the Lord's Supper.